Welcome to the Machine to Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck or maybe if not, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Taylor and I would like to extend a very machinic welcome to our guest today, friend of the show, Melody, who is creator of the YouTube channel, A World to Win. So welcome to the happy hour. Oh, thank you very much. I made that a little bit awkward. So today we're looking at (laughs) <laughs> what are we looking at? We're looking at anti-during. And um, Melody, I'm curious, have you heard this meme that Engels was Max Stirner? <laughs> I think only sort of obliquely through you guys. I've maybe gotcha. have heard this oh, that's meme, funny. but I haven't heard it for my- You, you haven't know, heard it? Oh, interesting. It. No. Yeah. So obviously it's not true, but I think it's always been kind of this funny meme. And it's funny that the little drawing that we have of Stirner is thanks to Engels. Yeah. Engels at late in life. The little, right? That like, little like doodle with the like side profile of, of Stirner we owe to Engels. Stirner has that like shit eating grin on his face. <laughs> it's great. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is how I pictured Stirner actually looked in real life. I'm <laughs> like, no, this, this is not a person. This was like a literal cartoon character. It's those really, glasses that are, yeah. that are anyway, oh, yeah. go ahead. Group. I have my Stirner glasses too. There's a poem or something that Engels has about Stirner. He's like, look at Stirner, full of blah, blah, blah. He's drinking beer now, but soon he'll be drinking blood. <laughs> okay. It's a great quote. Maybe I'll I'll look it up real quick. Yeah. So, so Stirner was really just a, a spook of Engels' imagination. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I think that's a better meme than him being Stirner. Melody, yeah, just to get started, um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background in the sciences, your your sort of studies, and maybe at the end kind of digress into what got you interested in Ingalls and reading Ingalls. And thank you for suggesting us to read Ingalls because I told you before the show, you know, I've never read any of his solo work, but I know that at the time, just reading the introduction to the work, it, it actually had a lot of impact that may may have been more direct than something like the theoretical magnum opus of capital. You know, I did my undergrad education in physics. I'm mm-hmm. currently in graduate school for uh, economics, but my undergrad I did in physics, and that drew me philosophically to what I noticed is that there really wasn't much philosophy going on in my department. I was surrounded by very, very smart, capable people who could do a lot of math and who were, you know, some of them were very inventive with uh, sort of the machines that they were able to build and so on. I studied under a professor who was very famous for his ability to build things like uh, electron microscopes and that kind of thing. So I was surrounded by very smart, capable people who were good at building things and good at math, but did not have a whole lot of satisfying answers to things about, you know, like, why does this stuff work the way it does? And sort of the answer I always got was, I don't know, kid, it just works. Again, very smart, capable people who didn't give much attention to these questions and the theoretical uh, speculative stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I mean, again, you know, they were very literate in scientific theory in, you know, in uh, electrodynamics and in statistical mechanics, all these sort of advanced topics in theoretical physics. My department was pretty experimentally oriented, but still, okay. you don't get a physics PhD in this country without knowing your stuff about right. um, theory as well as experimentation. So I was just sort of, I was intrigued at this relationship between a theoretical and experimental physics. And I didn't get a whole lot of really great answers from my professors about like, why there was sort of that gap. Why is it that there is a theoretical physics department and an experimental physics department or something of that nature? Why is there this divide? And like, furthermore, like, why can a guy like Einstein come up with something like relativity just by meditating, so to speak? (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Einstein was also a very capable experimental scientist, but things like relativity, he came up with largely through, through sort of thought experiments and mathematical speculation. How does that come to pass that on the one hand, you have somebody like Michael Faraday, who uh, not particularly well-educated on the theoretical front, but basically discovered everything we know about electricity and magnetism back in the Mm -hmm. 1800s. And it takes a guy like James Maxwell, James Clerk Maxwell to actually like formulate it formally and theoretically. Why does this divide exist? And why is there this back and forth within scientific history, right? Sometimes we get the theory first and nobody gets to build the machine that can actually measure it until a hundred years later. We had Einstein predicting gravitational waves back in 1915, and we didn't actually have the thing called LIGO, the interferometer, to measure it until 2015. So it took literally 100 years to bring this, uh, you know, well, there was some evidence that he was correct about relativity in the intervening years, of course, but specifically the prediction of gravitational waves didn't come around for 100 years. So the things that got me interested in philosophy were sort of the dismissive, hand-wavy non-answers I got to these questions from people who I had a lot of respect for. You know, it's not like, you know, these again, these are not stupid people, right? These are very smart, capable scientists. They just, the American education system is so, especially in the natural sciences, is so dedicated to this like instrumental, like everything's just about results and (laughs) how much- Very Kantian. Yes, it's very, yes. (laughs) Very Kantian ethos. Exactly, exactly. Because you have mentioned recently- you kind of described yourself as a latecomer to philosophy. So was it was it sort of in the intervening years after your bachelor's that you decided to sort of go back and maybe fill in some of these or, or, yeah. or at least explore the, the sense of wonder, right? Yeah, I think it's just a little column A, a little column B. I think it's just sort of towards the end of my bachelor's degree that this is stuff is starting to, to drag on me. And I, I'm kind of going, you know, maybe I should, you know, I don't know, read some, read some Nietzsche, read some Hegel, whatever, you know, like read this and that and the other thing. I didn't go through systematically. And, you know, anybody who's talked to me will probably note that I don't sound like somebody who has a formal philosophical education because I'm not. I'm somebody who's, you know, you can tell from talking to me, I I learned through, uh, you know, reading Stanford Encyclopedia philosophy entries. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just, you know, I don't want to pretend that I'm way more galaxy brain than I really am. (laughs) Uh, I've read read some books. I've done some, I would say I'm sort of in the continual process of uh, of backfilling my philosophy and humanities education. So, uh, you know, probably com- compared to some of your other uh, guests, I think I'm probably nowhere near as philosophically literate, but um, I'll do my best. I will say just just to just because I don't want you to disparage yourself, a lot of our guests kind of describe their coming to philosophy in, in very much the same way. Almost a lot of it sounds, and Coop can back me up here, a lot of it sounds like serendipity, kind of just being in the 
library and sort of pulling out a volume of Nietzsche or somebody that they respected, like a professor having a book of some thinker on their desk. And then that kind of driving a curiosity, even someone like Ray Brazier, you know, talking about working manual labor jobs in his 20s and then going back and doing a bachelor and sort of, again, being kind of a latecomer. I think a lot of kind of people have just these happenstance, happy coincidences that, and we're all sort of backfilling. Plus, you know, not to quote Socrates or whatever, but, you know, knowledge is knowing that we know nothing. It's it's not about attaining wisdom. It's about it's about the grasping toward it. It's not having it, right? It's about sort of- yeah, uh, it's always a dialectical trying. process. So, well, there you go. So yeah, I guess that that fills in your, your scientific background. And so it, I guess, is that part of what interested you in Engels- for example, the, the dialectic of nature, or was this another kind of happenstance? Because you can sort of digress on, you've, you told me before we started that, you know, you've read Althusser, you've read um, Lukash and, yeah. and Lefebvre. So you have an interest also in socialism, communism, etc. These Marxist thinkers, especially famous during, I guess in the 20th century, there've been a lot of famous, in the later half, a lot of famous French, you know, thinkers. But Obviously, I guess that's my curiosity, linking some of these things together with your scientific background. Yeah, I think part of the answer is my biggest hand wave is, you know, serendipity. You know, somebody said, here, read Marx, and then Marx turned into Engels, and Engels turned into Lefebvre, and and Lukács, and so on. Yeah, I think, you know, to the extent that I have sort of given myself a patchwork, a functioning patchwork Marxist education, it's been sort of through this process of, okay, well, if I want to understand this, I need to understand that. So Mm -hmm. let's dive deeper into this subject. But I think as we'll, of course, as we'll probably discuss in in the coming conversation, this particular study of of angles has interested me because of the sort of anti-angles undercurrent in a certain pedigree of Western Marxism, which is to say, you know, Engels equals Lenin equals Stalin equals 20,000 dead Gulag Vuvuzela. So I think we've got some work to do in terms of sort of unpacking why that is and uh, understanding that Engels' part in the Marxist uh, philosophical and practical project. Yeah. And it does seem like, as I mentioned, you know, since I haven't until sort of we decided on our discussion for today, I hadn't read Engels' solo work. I sort of gleaned either about, for example, the dialectic of nature from other sources or read some of the, whether it be some of the correspondence between Marx and Engels or obviously their co-author work like the Communist Manifesto, which is sometimes one of the first things one reads when one's kind of getting oriented in in all of this work. I, I forget how many volumes there are in their <laughs> collected work, but it's, but it's like 40, 50. It's, it's pretty there's a lot there. And, but it does also seem not just a kind of prejudice, as you said, but it it seems like a, a sad reason or one of those reasons just not to even have to read Engels to sort of maybe put up with Engels when it's co-authored stuff like the manifesto. But for the most part, you can just read Marx, you can read Capital Volume One, whatever. It seems like a an easy way to cut off half of the collected editions from one's reading list. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's sort of a way of performing an intellectual exorcism, right? Like yeah, yeah. devil be gone, right? You know, get angles out of Marxism, but you know, this is like, let's have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich just but without the peanut butter. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, what? Yeah. It's so, just a jelly sandwich. I don't want, I don't want a jelly sandwich. <laughs> I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. I like that. Similar um, to how like Guattari gets pushed aside a lot. Most people focus on Deleuze, obviously. And a lot of times the co-authored work just gets shortened to, to Deleuze yeah, and, right. and gets and gets relegated to him alone. I may have mentioned this to you, Melody, that Zizek does something similar in his weird book on organs without bodies, you know, on Deleuze, which is really a, a book on Hegel, not surprisingly. But, you know, he, he basically thinks that Anti-Oedipus is Deleuze's worst book, that and I had a I had a professor that I that I very much a self-proclaimed Maoist professor who really got me into thinkers like Laura Well and deeper into Deleuze and Guattari and whatnot. And he kind of shares this view that Guattari more or less led Deleuze astray. And so there is a similar type of, at least in the West, as you mentioned before the show, there's this there seems to be this similar prejudice that somehow Engels, whatever was wrong say either in Marxism or in some of Marx's own works or in the collaborator works, it's Engels that becomes the scapegoat. Which is absolutely, I think, at best intellectually dishonest. And at worst, you know, you really have to do some brain pretzeling, some mental gymnastics to get yourself there because, you know, Engels and Marx were close friends and collaborators for the better part of their adult lives for 40, yeah. 40 some odd years. Yeah. And Engels, you know, not only did Marx and Engels co-write so many things together, Engels and later Kotsky, Karl Kotsky were the, you know, the intellectual conservators of Marx's posthumous writings. So, you know, that's why we have Capitals Volume 2 and 3. Right. And you know, in the case of Kotsky, theories of surplus value and the sort of the, the greater corpus of Marx's writings, we have preserved largely in thanks to the hard work and editorship of his, you know, best friend and comrade. And uh, frequently, Marx was, uh, of course, not just a intellectual, but also an activist. And, yeah. you know, he was very involved in the workers' movement. And intellectually, he wanted to write about absolutely everything. And one of Engels' sort of roles as a, as a companion and friend to him, but also as a, as a, you know, an intellectual mentor was that, you know, Engels was frequently the guy telling Marx to sit down, shut up and get your shit done. You can read this in the, some of the correspondence. Engels was frequently sort of prodding Marx to, you know, hey, get back to work, go focus on capital. Like you have a job to do here. I like that because Deleuze, uh, this will be the last time I bring Deleuze, but Deleuze had a similar type of relationship with Guattari, where Guattari kind of laments a little bit that Deleuze almost like, you know, handcuffed him to his writing desk and was like, all right, six hours of, of whatever, you know, just get it out, produce. So that's also interesting, though, that, that Engels is, is kind of trying to keep Marx on track, that there is a goal for their, their writing. Very much so. In sort of uh, our discussion of dialectics of nature and anti-during, that and the other book that we read as a supplement to this, yeah. Frederick Engels and the Dialectics of Nature by Kan Kangal. Uh, sorry, probably didn't pronounce that name correctly. But these are very politically situated books. Anti-during, <clears throat> as the name implies, 
or as its full name is Herr Döring's Revolution in the Sciences or something like that. <laughs> You're right, yeah, yeah. Um, especially in the case of the Döring book, they're both highly polemical in nature. They are yeah. trying to accomplish every work of Marx and Engels, and then frequently every you know sort of Marxist work in their aftermath is politically situated, either yeah. in dialogue with other socialists, other Marxists, or what have you. So, you know, anti-During, and especially the segment of it that gets, you know, sort of excised and turned into um, socialism, utopian, and scientific, is really an intervention in this early debate of 19th century socialism. What is right. socialism? We are contesting a definition of socialism here. So the stakes are very high for Engels in this, in this intervention. I didn't read up a lot about the man against the thinker against whom Ingalls is polemicizing, except in the sort of the introductory, um, the editorial introduction in the collected works, volume 25, where basically I got the sense that during was, you know, he had these big tomes on philosophy, law, basically, you know, all these, these different things and was influential in sort of, situating socialism as you as you bring up and sort of giving it a direction for the different socialist parties and there's a there's an intervention aspect where Engels is trying to kind of course correct and dismiss during's just palaver his kind of bullshit to help give a better foundation and orientation for these parties that was kind of the gist I got I'm not sure if you maybe want to yeah. modify or add no, to that's, that that's spot on uh, but also you probably, you know, I, I take it that you, both of you are probably pretty familiar with Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is one of the reasons that Nietzsche is so critical of what he called socialism was his criticism. He also criticized Eugen Doring. Really? Uh, okay. I don't even yeah. remember that. That's yeah, interesting. So, so uh, Doring was uh, also not unlike some of the other early socialists in this era, like Proudhon and Bakunin was also deeply anti-Semitic, which Nietzsche thought was just the mark of a, of a charlatan. And Engels remarks on Doring's anti-Semitism as well, and other people's anti-Semitism. But Doring would have been a pretty famous thinker. I use that word loosely, yeah. but he would, have been a, <laughs> he would have been a pretty well-read writer then at the time. And I think that Obviously, that that's again why there needed to be this intervention and this polemic. If he was not well read or yeah. influential, then it's like punching down. But there is a sense in which he, I know today we only remember him for like a work like this. But it seems like at the time he he had a lot of influence, and that that was pretty concerning for Engels. Yes, one of the very important aspects of both Marx and Engels' criticism, not only of Doing, but of other socialist contemporaries of theirs, was that here are these guys who are frequently very well-educated, very smart guys, who sort of are presenting themselves as Moses come down from Mount Sinai, as we're the great socialist luminaries and we're going to lead us into the future. We have this perfect blueprint of what the future socialist society is going to be like. And if you follow us to our culty cabin in the woods, we will build socialism together. Engels and Marx, I think this is actually a Marx quote rather than an Engels quote, but it's a paraphrase. He says, we don't come to the world saying, here's the truth, kneel down before it. We bring our principles come from the principles of nature, of the world. We are you know, not coming to you as, as your saviors. We are right. coming to you with, with swords and hammers to, you know, to build this new world together, which I think is consistent throughout sort of the revolutionary heritage of the Marxist tradition. This is not about coming to the unwashed masses with perfect 
ideas about how to construct the future together. This right. is about being of one with the workers, of one with the oppressed. Not to dive into the middle of this, but it seems like there was a point where Ingalls, for me, kind of clarified the the kind of the basic theoretical foundation that During was putting forward, which was a kind of simplified, quasi-Russoistic, in the worst sense, theory of two individuals, kind of like a Robinson Crusoe Friday situation. And you see this throughout the different sections that Ingalls is kind of identifying this highly idealized, again, a a thought experiment in the worst sense of just kind of a two-body problem, if you will. And, And during... And and showing in in the very essence of this, not just that it's it's idealist idealist thought experiment crap, but how it really begs the question of any sort of existing mode of subsistence or social formation out of these. It's it's not Adam and Eve; it's just Adam and Adam A and Adam B, right? And their interaction and how from these two individuals, these two social atoms, if you will, kind of outside of space and time. Things like inequality, subservience, all these different phenomena can be explained. And I think that I really do think it is begging the question rather than actually illuminating anything. And that's just an example. We could talk more about Durin's little model of, you know, of these different formations. But for me, I think Ingalls kind of showed pretty consistently in every area how that kind of fantasy of this primordial scene is so far removed from any, not only any explanation given, but just from any obvious concrete reality. Not to get off on too many tangents here, but we see but, this sort of all within the, the lineages of anti-Semitism. Interesting. Right? Because what they're presupposing is that we used to be a whole. We used to be, you know, humanity used to be, we have had these peaceful, idyllic relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then the the financiers, the right. speculators came right. in and fucked it all up. And right, we need right, right. to return. Yes. You know, so you see this, I really don't want to be stretching things here, but this is sort of where you can pick up on Doring's latent anti-Semitism without mm-hmm. him overtly saying, you know, it's the Jews, we need to get rid of the Jews or whatever. Right. Um, but you can detect it in a lot of these sort of these narratives of, you know, you see that in everything from Doring's sort of, you know, Robinson Crusoe type thought experiments to sort of call them the noble savage trope of look at these primitive peoples. They they're so wise, they're so in touch with the earth, you know, and what we've the industrial society we've built, we need to tear it all down and get rid of these interloping individuals to uh, restore our humanity and restore our relation to the earth, which is, you know, again, you see this in everything from sort of, you know, whatever you want to call it, like. European nativism, you see this all, all over the place in, uh, you know, white American nativism and and so on. These fantasies of, of sort of going going back to a happier time. That's right. One of the really interesting points that Engels made relative to, I guess, dialectical, well, historical materialism that I thought was quite spicy and interesting, but I think perhaps right on was his discussion about slavery and how slavery really I think the liberal like model for the development of slavery would assume we were savages. Slavery was primary. It was an automatic thing where Mm. Engels reverses this and says, well, 
the productive forces have to develop. There has to be a certain amount of surplus to provide the free available time, not reproducing the social to have like watch over these, you know what I mean? To sort of have, I guess, some type of authority over the slaves, right? Initially, they would have been like early on. Yes, perhaps they would have been killed or, you know, cannibalized, etc. So it's not until much later that slavery as an institution, as a widespread thing develops. Now, there could have been some type of, I don't want to say primitive, but what's a bit, what's a better word, like a more fundamental aspect of slavery, like at some point, but it's not like this socially, it's not like institutionalized within society until the productive capacity reaches a certain point. And I think in contrast, like I said, liberals would be like, no, there's something inherent about humanity. Like there's domination is inherent. These hierarchies are inherent and, you know, we're sort of stuck with this form of existence, et cetera. So again, it's begging the question in a certain way. If you take slavery as a, as a natural human essential aspect, then you don't have to explain how it came into formation. Right. And I think that that's, that's counter to dialectical materialism or, or any dialectic. Uh, absolutely. And exact, exactly what Engels does and a lot of his other work is to precisely to denaturalize these hierarchies and these, you know, these forms of, and to say that these develop in very specific situations. Right. And one of his reposts to Döring, Döring is those chapters on the force theory, right? Everything yeah. is about right, force. Yeah. But Engels sort of turns that around. He says, yeah, there's force, but why? Mm-hmm. Why, yeah. is, why use force? It's because it's to do something. It's to enforce a certain system of economic and political exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. You can't ignore the role. This is like saying, you know, why do we have the state under capitalism? It's yeah. not just because cops have guns, right? This is sort of circular definition. Well, they have guns so that they can break up the strike. There's right. a concrete relation between, you know, in our contemporary epoch between the boss and the worker, you know, or you could apply this in other situations, but it's to create and reinforce a certain, you know, again, I, I mode of production, right? Yeah. This, is, this is a terminology that becomes the social relations useful. of private property too. Yes. There's another way to think about it. <clears throat> John Bellamy Foster, who's a contemporary sort of eco Marxist thinker, university of Oregon, I believe has really emphasized in Marx's work, the term social metabolism, which is much more encompassing. It's not just about production as such, but including things like social reproduction, like from Mm -hmm. sort of Marxist feminist theory that, you know, the labor that gets done, that housekeeping and Mm -hmm. child rearing and things that don't immediately bear on the capital P production process, but also involves sort of humanity's intercourse with nature, which again, we'll get back to that when we start talking about Engels' dialectics of nature. But this idea that what's animating the development of human societies through history is this intercourse between humans and nature and humans and each other in their ordering of power and wealth within their societies. That is the task of dialectical materialism as a method of doing history and social science. This is good. This kind of does get to the heart of a lot of the arguments we see, not just from Engels, but also from Marx. For example, you brought Proudhon about this notion that this sort of prejudice, if you will, that the sort of private property, again, is a given rather than something that comes about historically through a set of relations of production and reproduction. So it really is this way of showing consistently throughout 
during his work, how there were all these different presuppositions that he sort of bakes into the cake rather than sort of showing the ingredient list, if you will, or, or how the cake gets made. That's right. When we talk about dialectics in terms of how it's employed by Marx and Engels and later Marxists as a, how it's deployed in sort of its understanding of historical processes, which is to look at phenomenon in history, both in isolation and in interconnection to one another, right? It's sort of meant one of their many criticisms of what they sort of, in my opinion, somewhat reductively, but it works. They call it a metaphysical approach is to say this stuff is and always has been, right? But the idea is that you look at it first in isolation, yes, because you need to understand a phenomenon on its own terms, but then in interconnection with its surrounding, you know, historical epoch and the other things that were going on, environmental, social, political, and so on and so on. His criticism of During is sort of a great case study in how I would say Marx and good Marxists have continued to do that kind of historical work. And the example that I would cite would be Perry Anderson's book, Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism, Mm -hmm. which if you want to really understand the Marxist method applied historically to an era of transition, here's the Roman Empire falls and up comes all these feudal societies. How does that happen? Mm -hmm. Anderson gets into it and he very much deploys this method to break it down. It sounds fascinating. I've been thinking a lot about feudal society, probably just because of House of the Dragon TV show. And of course, I was like a super fan of like the Song of Ice and Fire. So this stuff has been very much in my <laughs> <laughs> this stuff has been very much in my head and just thinking about these questions of what were these societies like, how cruel were things, what was it like, etc. But one thing that I find extremely fascinating, and Angles gets into this a bit in terms of In one example, he discusses the development of military tactics a la Napoleon as far as him like implementing this sort of Hegelian, this very rough Hegelianism to to cavalry tactics. But one thing I wanted to maybe broach as a possible jumping off point would be something like plate armor, for example, was not developed until cannons and guns sort of became a thing. Before that, it wasn't even a thing. So it kind of is an interesting way to look at that sort of literally arms race and historical development that I found really fascinating. I don't know if that jogs any kind of potential jumping off point for this kind of historical historical materialism or dialectical historical materialism. I think it's a great point to sort of show where this is where very much the dialectics of nature and the historical approach have significant intellectual overlap. Mm-hmm. And uh, may I share, there's a, a part from Dialectics of Nature from please from the chapter, the part played by labor in the transition from ape to man. Okay, good. If you have this well-read edition of Dialectics of Nature, it's on page 194. He says, the hand is not only the organ of labor, it is also the product of labor. Labor, adaptation to ever new operations, the inheritance of muscles, ligaments, and over longer periods of time, bones that had undergone special development, and the ever-renewed employment of this inherited finesse in new, more and more complicated operations, have given the human hand the high degree of perfection required to conjure into being the picture of Raphael, the statues of Thor Walston, and the music of Paganini. 
but the hand did not exist alone. It was only one member of an integral and highly complex organism. And what benefited the hand benefited also the whole body it served. This in two ways. This very short passage demonstrates, in my opinion, the power of the dialectical framing of sort of both the progression of the sort of the arms race of, mm-hmm. of organisms in their environment, the comple- internal complexity of humans or you know hominids developing these freaky little five-finger death machines we have, <laughs> and also how not only does our environment impact us, but that is how we come to impact back on our environment. It is a right. two, two-way street. It is dialectical in that sense. And I think that exactly the way he talks about the development of hands in this chapter on the transition from ape to man, I think maps very, very well onto his talking about the infantry tactics in that chapter. You know, this also, just to go back to Westeros is kind of a touchstone for this. This may be, I think it perhaps is a plot contrivance, but I think one way to maybe like kind of look at this creatively and something that maybe people can attach themselves to would be something like, why have firearms not developed in Westeros? Like they've had this very steady state society for thousands of years where it's, I guess it's like this quasi feudal, the economics are never really dug into, you know, although there are things like the Iron Bank, et cetera, like the actual economics aren't really delved into, but it is kind of interesting. Like, is it the fact that the winters are unpredictable, et cetera? Is it the dragons? What sort of social force is repressing the development of firearms? Yeah, that's a great question. It's um, kind of interesting, right? You know, Martin as a, as a writer is clearly deeply historically literate on, mm-hmm. on medieval economics and, and history. If you're familiar with uh, Dan Jones, this is a historian mm-hmm. who, uh, wrote and kind of sort of in the wake of the popularity of the song of ice and fire and and the tv show game of thrones wrote a book called power and thrones or something like that hmm. i think this is dan jones who wrote these but he's sort of a medievalist and gets into how a lot of what martin wrote was i mean obviously a lot of martin is literary literarily right. inspired by like shakespeare but in turn both are inspired by the wars of the roses as to the sort of more fantastical elements of Martin's writing, I think he's sort of, I think Westeros is a place that is on a different planet. And right. They had, right. you know, winters that last uh, decades, that kind of thing, right? We don't have that. That's a, right. the element. But that of, would be a great example yeah. of like how sort of mater- this sort yeah, of biological materialism works. To build off of that, though, I think another thing that Engel says that I found super fascinating was in this kind of intermediate period between the development of the bourgeoisie and feudalism you had like he called firearms were the they were sort of the weapon of choice for the for the towns and the nobility mm-hmm. the, like the old nobility the crown etc i suppose were still stuck in this like more you know pole arms and you know swords except you know bows dot 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 but the cities were where firearms were the developed and i guess more readily adopted which i think is super fascinating you know as you can kind of see I mean, that's literally the motion of the historical dialectic in action right there. I would say another great example is the uh, the redesigning of the Paris streets. It went from Ooh. being long, open, you know, lots of open areas to being very narrow and much more subject to uh, overlooking rifles. So it's, or, you know, not rifles, but you, you know what I'm trying to say, guns. Right. <laughs> this is really out of my lane, but 
particularly Marxists who, who talk about things like gentrification and urban design mm. uh, have, have a, there's an incredibly yeah. rich literature on this. And if I can find some of that, I will give it. Well, some, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Lefebvre and I think yeah, he yeah. has that great tome. I can't think of the name of it. But Critique got of like, Everyday Life. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah, yeah. stuff like that is going to be right up Lefebvre's alley, though I haven't read him myself, but I knew you were yeah. mentioning him. In Those the, thinkers. The yeah. Those thinkers are definitely, I would say, like clearly philosophically inspired by Lefebvre, even if the the sort of uh, methodology they're taking up right, is a little yeah. bit more based on like data and uh, historical. I think it is interesting, though, like on that point of, I guess, theory and data, there are some interesting ways that Engels looks at something like contradictions within the organism. The organism is sort of in two states at once. So it almost has like this tenor of like a quantum superposition in a certain sense, but obviously he's well before, you know, this kind of stuff is developed. So it's really interesting to see how perhaps some, some, some not all, obviously, because we can see, you know, evidence through during, but not all speculative philosophy or whatever was total bullshit. You know what I mean? There was, again, in the dialectic, it's like, there's some truth to it. There's some not truth. We have to kind of progress through that to arrive at some I don't want to say synthesis, but I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know well, how to finish that statement. Well, I, I think for me, uh, Engel's version of dialectics is not about sort of a determinism in the sort of dominoes right. sense, but yeah. in the sense of laying the conditions of possibilities. I think one of the things that gets sort of caricatured and maybe vulgarized a little bit from the Marxist tradition is this idea that Marx thought that revolution and communism would be literally inevitable careful attention to the right writings of Marx and Engels suggests that they had a lot of faith that the workers would get their shit together on the one hand, but what they're really talking about is the opening up of possibilities. Yeah. That these are conditions, like this is about a social environment that is right. creating horrible conditions for working people. And they make this rather self-evident statement that there's a very good chance that they'll fight back. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that necessarily that they will, Right. In many cases, you know, I've seen sort of the the hypotheses of both, uh, you know, Lenin and uh, Eugene Debs, believe it or not, who both sort of uh, understood the concept of the labor aristocracy. And in fact, Marx and Engels in their later writings also have some comments on English chauvinism against the Irish, which bear on this discussion as well. But this idea that like, yeah, actually some some workers have it pretty good, you know, and Ooh. they don't have a reason to fight back. In fact, they might even pick up a rifle and join the uh, gendarmerie or something or the clan or what have you. So these things, uh, you know, are about conditions. Uh, right. People, I think the, the sort of get hung up on the, the word determination and right. determi determination just has such a, especially in the English language, has such a rigid connotation. I think when I am trying to convey these ideas, I talk about conditions and possibilities. Yeah. And as uh, I think Ernst Bloch said something like the conditions, the not yet right? Yeah. These things that are latent possibilities, right? And right. when we talk about dialectics, I think we're talking about tensions. We're talking about things that are simultaneously possible within right. either within an organism, within a social body, et cetera. There's both within, say, the proletariat or the, you know, the colonized masses or whatever, what have you, you have progressive revolutionary tendencies and you have reactionary tendencies and they can coexist in the same people. There's no such thing as, you know, like a pure proletarian soul or anything like that. Cause there's plenty of workers who are kind of dicks and there's plenty of 
bourgeois folk like uh, say Engels, for example, who mm-hmm. have a, who do have a revolutionary consciousness. Right. You know, I think that's worth noting. Like Engels was quite literally bourgeois. He yeah. owned a factory. <laughs> This is where I think Deleuze and Guattari are really good with their discussion of how you can sort of have these unconscious reactionary investments and conscious, you know, revolutionary investments and vice versa. And it's never really this totality. But I want to go back to the note thing you said about this sort of very linear causality, because I was really surprised, to be honest, to see Engels go back to Leibniz, because we've been talking, you know, we've done a couple episodes recently on Deleuze and Leibniz. So this is like top of mind as far as the differential calculus and how it sort of plays a role in this, where it's like, there's a certain, like there's an influence, but there's not like this linear causality. It's very, it's complicated. Like, I don't know how to exactly describe that, but like looking at the difference between, you know, one example is the, and Engels talks about this too, would be the difference between what is it like wage wage capital and finance capital, for example, they're sort of the same thing, but not like they're, they're the same thing. Industrial capital and not, finance capital, probably. Something like that. Yeah. Well, just like the wages paid out to the worker are not the same as the finance capital and, and all of that shit. So yeah. In Capital Volume One, you know, Marx talks about like the difference between how the bourgeois subject the MC to M prime. This is a very different qualitative experience with this thing called money than it is for the individual wage worker who transforms C, their their labor power, into right. M back into C because they're just trying to get to the next paycheck, right? Right. So right. they have this very different subjective experience with the same circuit. Right. Right. So it's very like perspective does matter. And this is where you see this dialectical logic, both in Engels and Marx. But sorry, I I sort of, I I lost my train of thought. No, Um, no, no. I mean, you actually, that that was. Yeah, I think you're doing Oh, but with regard to sort of the analogy with calculus and sort of other physical mathematical phenomenon, and this is where I'll pile on and with my, with my physics stuff. uh, Please do. Which (laughs) is, uh, are you familiar with the double pendulum? No, I'm not. The double pendulum is, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, one hinge on top and the other pendula uh, got is, it. Okay. is hinged to the bottom of that one. I can already see what you're kind of saying, yeah. what you're thinking. So a double pendulum is the s- most simple case in classical mechanics of something we call classical chaos, hmm. which is to say, depending on where you start those two ends, the pattern they trace out, it's perfectly deterministic. It's totally predictable via, you know, using differential equations. You can totally predict the path in a uniform gravitational field, but depending on where exactly where those two pendula are when they start out, you will get a very, very different path that they follow. Same conditions, you know, they're very sensitive to where they start out. Now, I think the beauty of the dialectical method as thought and practiced by Marx and Engels is that this is what we get. We get something that tells us sort of a the class struggle equivalent of a theory of classical chaos, something that tells us here's the field of struggle that we're on in this historical period, and here are the different sort of poles, if you will, or yeah, pen- yeah. pendula. <laughs> and can we make any sort of categorical statements? Well, not so much because people don't behave like pendula, but- we still have, I think, a pretty strong analogy from classical physics to so, you know, sociological historical yeah. phenomenon here. And that's 
sort of the beauty of, of the Marxist dialectic that I've sort of come to appreciate as somebody who's both now studied yeah. the natural sciences and the social sciences. Yeah, it's very cool that you can bring both of those to bear so well. Really quick, I want to, do you think the relation, because Engels mentions this too about the straight line and the curve and like, it's almost like, depending on what perspective you have, the curve could be perceived as a straight line. Yeah. Do you recall this? I can relate it to a discussion within within, uh, mathematics called the geodesic. So let's say you have a sphere and you zoom in to a little, little tiny portion of the sphere and you draw a line. Well, you have to get real close to that line before it looks like a straight line. If you were like a little ant crawling right. on the sphere, you would see it as a straight line and you would keep following the straight line around the globe <laughs> or around the sphere. And you'd be like, none the wiser, right? It yeah. really takes that third person, more sort of objective yeah. experience of the sphere to be mm-hmm. able to understand that there is no straight line. It's actually a, a circle on a three-dimensional surface. But this concept of the geodesic, which is very important for like Einstein and, and general yeah. relativity, mm-hmm. because this is how masses, planets and stars and so on, tracing through space, they stretch space-time around them and mm-hmm. they change the path that a geodesic would take. This is how we get things like gravitational lensing, because if you have a, a star yeah, or, a, or a black space. hole or something, it's going to warp. Yeah, exactly. So there's something actually called an Einstein cross, which mm. is a pattern you get where if a, a black hole or another large body is sort of in front of a star, would ostensibly be blacking it out. You actually see the star that's behind the black hole because it is just like a piece of like a literal lens. It's space time is stretched around that massive body. And you actually see sort of the distorted go, go on Google sometime, look up Einstein cross and you it's, they're beautiful. They're absolutely one of the most stunning things you can see through a telescope. I think this could fit too into the metaphor of what is it? Men make history, but they don't know what they make. Men make their own history, but they do not do so under conditions of their own choosing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Outing myself as a doctrinaire Marxist that I was able to just <laughs> uh, have that I was one counting on you. ready I was to t- hand. Exactly. I was totally, I was counting on you there. So. Yeah. I was just looking at the Einstein cross. It's, it is fascinating. The- it's kind of interesting too, because that kind of goes back to like the, the way that Leibniz discusses the monads or the singularities. They have a perspective. They don't see the totality. So anyways, I've been. Yeah. Uh, the, ho- sort of hogging the conversation today. <laughs> no, sorry. The great physicist John Archibald Wheeler has a very famous aphorism. He said, matter tells space-time how to curve, space-time tells matter how to move. That's dialectics of nature right there. I, if yeah. that's not dialectics in nature, I don't know what is. To sort of stick with this topic, one of the fascinating things, because you brought up Lukács before we started recording, and I thought it was interesting in chapter three of Kingall's book on, you know, Engels and the dialectic of nature, he singles out this statement from Lukács that sort of Engels importing dialectics into nature was something he took, he kind of found it to be maybe misapplied and that it should only be more focused on on social development, on history, on humanity or whatnot. And as you just pointed out, well, first of all, you you kind of, I was just piggybacking off your statement about sort of that's the dialectic of nature and an aphorism, but what do you make of this kind of statement or even what Lukács was getting at 
Well, frankly, if Lukacs was in the room with us, I would just say, sir, you are wrong. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, I think that we should be careful in understanding sort of, if we want to take sort of a caricature of Hegelian dialectics as this very like rigid and schematic notion of like, like it's something that we are ideally presupposing and then imposing onto physical reality. I think there's some sort of schematic mistakes that you can make there. And that if that's Lukash's point, sure, I agree. Because nature right. is nature is crazy complex and you can't, in my opinion, this is if this is your idea of what dialectics is, you know, the sort of schematic triads and all that, then yeah, you're gonna make you're gonna make some pretty you, you open yourself up to some pretty um clownish stuff if you just try to schematically apply that to everything in nature. But that's this is really not how, as evidenced by both the book Dialectics of Nature itself and you know, anti-doing and Engels' many other works, this is not what he means, nor how he's applying dialectics. He's using dialectics in this much more nuanced manner that's clearly understanding that dialectics is something that we get from our experience with the world, not something right. yeah. that we cooked up in our brains and are projecting onto it. And that if something is messed up in our dialecticization, if you will, then that's something that we messed up, not something that the universe messed up, so yes. to speak. He also goes into it would be like the materialism of someone like Lucretius or Epicurus. And then, so the negation of that would be this more, I don't know, maybe that would be Christianity or something. And then along comes Hegel and sort of negates that. But even Hegel contains some of the old, like the Lutheran Christianity within him. And then Marx negates this with turning Hegel up on his on his head right side up or whatever the quote is on I his guess. feet got that on his but, feet, yeah right. right side up yeah although that i guess this sort of sounds a bit this is a, a bit reductive but it kind of i think goes to the some of the more nuanced discussion that angles applies towards dialectics and how kind of like yeah i mean it goes back to the differentials i think really and just like this non-linear causality is too strong but influence perhaps and you can sort of never predict what how intense that relationship or influence will be, but there's sort of a relation, but it's not determined, etc. Quite interesting. I like the way, Melly, before you respond to Coop, I like the way earlier you kind of described the dialectics of nature, not the book, but the sort of the concept in terms of tensions. And maybe another word we could add would be like antagonisms rather than contradictions in any sort of abstract logical sense. Absolutely. I think Engels is, I think, very clear about this, especially at the outset. He is talking about the science. Dialectics for Engels is the science of interconnections. This is about how one thing is related to another and how they form a greater whole. They form mm -hmm. a, a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts, so to speak. Yeah. Sort of, I think that the Aristotle, that's sort of it's not like dogmatically upheld or anything, but it's this is clearly like the imprint of Aristotle in within Marxian materialism. You brought up the word metabolism, which we see not just in Engels' writing, but in Marx's writing too, even in, in Capital. And this is something we talked to Thomas Nail about uncovering the social metabolism inherent in, you know, whether it be relations of production or or whatnot, but seeing that as the if you will, the model for dialectics rather than any sort of, as Coop brought up, any sort of abstract or crude Hegelianism. Yeah. And sorry, you brought up Lucretius and I, unfortunately, I don't have the page number ready to hand, but I do have a quote 
ready. Okay. Nice. Um, yeah, please. In uh, Dararam Natura, I think Lucretius has, or the nature of the universe, Lucretius has that line, the world has persisted for many a long year, having first been set it going in the appropriate motions from these all else follows. Don't ask me. I had just had that in my pocket. But Engels riffs on that. He says in Dialectics of Nature, he says, the planets and their satellites, once set in motion by the mysterious first impulse, circled Mm. on and on in their predestined ellipses for all eternity, or at any rate, until the end of all things. The stars remained forever fixed and immovable in their places, keeping one another therein by universal gravitation. The earth persisted without alteration for all eternity, or alternatively, from the first day of its creation. The five continents of the present had always existed, and they had always had the same mountains, valleys, rivers, and so on, except insofar as change or cultivation had taken place at the hands of man. The species of plants and animals have always been established once and for all, once they come into existence. Like continually produced like. In contrast to the history of mankind, which develops in time, there was ascribed to the history of nature only an unfolding in space. All change, all development in nature was denied. Natural science, so revolutionary at its outset, suddenly found itself confronted by an out-and-out conservative nature Mm. in which everything today was as it has been at the beginning and in which, to the end of the world or for all eternity, everything would remain as it had since the beginning. This caricature, if you will, of natural science we see in in, uh, Dürer's work. I mean, there's this wonderful passage where he points out how during kind of starts with unity, immobility, and then somehow motion comes out of that. But, you know, as, as Engel says, no, that there's no way to get to the motion if you don't start with that. There's no way out of unity and immobility to generate motion, rather than just a kind of, um, again, pulling a rabbit out of a hat, a, a sort of a bootstrapping mechanism. But he, he kind of points out that during takes... For example, one of Kant's antinomies, right? The cosmological antinomy on, on the earth having, or the universe having a beginning and an end, or whether it being sort of eternal and endless, and just chooses one of them rather than seeing it precisely as an antinomy. So I, I think it's interesting to see that Engels can find this tendency, this charlatanism, if you will, or just this one-sidedness in that it's a much more, it's, it's an epidemic rather than just situated as one thinker. This one thinker is a symptom, I guess, of of this broader sort of pseudo-philosophy, pseudoscience, rather than merely an outlier, if you will. I think that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the other thing that's really important to note here is that again, I'm coming at this as a natural scientist myself. And when mm-hmm. I read when I read through Dialectics of Nature, you know what I thought to myself is you know, this is not a book. These are lab notes. Interesting. And they are, yeah, I like that. I like that. And they are the, as a scientist, I have to say, they are the lab notes of a very attentive and well-read student. And, you know, people will rightly, you know, criticize Engels for, you know, having not gotten some things right in the dialectics of nature. But the thing is, is that when they do that, in my mind, what they're really doing is they're criticizing 19th century science, which right. of yes, course exactly. Engels knew, which is, of course, Engels knew it was wrong, could be wrong, because Engels and Marx had this fundamental outlook, which was informed by this desire to be scientific thinkers. Right. Right. Call it scientific socialism, right? This is the idea that we're not going to go build the perfect city on the hill over there and it's going to be our perfect socialist society, right? That's the utopian socialists who, by the way, they do have a a degree of admiration for, right? They very, 
ad, you know, they have a great amount of adulation for, for uh, John Foyer, for Robert Owen, especially for Robert Owen. New Lanark is, is a, a fascinating case study in, in utopian socialism. But their point, again, both Marx and Engels, is that these are not things that you, you can't just conjure this out of the ground. Right. You have yeah. to struggle and build for it, especially concerning that the misery visited upon the proletariat and the colonized by colonialism and capitalism and so on. These are things that you can't you can't be like Moses coming down from the mountain <laughs> to lay before them the Ten Commandments of socialism. You have to, as Trotsky said, you know, struggle among the people for their bread. But the thing is, you know, I started. I started here with the with the remark about science, and I got. All, all, <laughs> no, you're good though. No, you're good though, because uh, I think something. This is something that Freud shares too. Like a lot of people discount Freud for kind of this same reason, without kind of contextualizing what he was trying to. Because he was he was trying to be, especially at the beginning, a lot more um, devoted to psychoanalysis. At some point, becoming an actual hard science. Yeah, and not just hard because it's about dicks. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a dick is just a dick, but uh, libidinal economy. Here we go. <laughs> well, I, it, it is interesting too. You said something really nice that I, I want to bring back up just to reiterate it because I, I want to sear it in my mind how Engels and Marx obviously they denaturalize these phenomena like Cooper's example of slavery or private property or these other social formations that are sort of taken yeah. as givens, denaturalizing them. I think bringing in Freud, as Coop did just now, there's some sense in which Freud attempted, if not always succeeding, in denaturalizing sexuality. Obviously, I think Lacan and, and other thinkers have tried to take that route and push it further because Freud, again, was, you know, he was situated in the prejudices of his time and the sort of the ongoing processes of science. So we obviously had a lot of he had a lot of bad takes on women, for example. But, you know, given that, though, I think this move towards denaturalization, it sounds counterintuitive or maybe ironic, but perhaps that is a, I guess there's a different sense to nature if we take it that in a certain sense, dialectics of nature is denaturalizing. It's the nature that we assume in our heads, right, that we need to denaturalize. There's there's some, it's what we take as natural, as What we take as given, yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, the myth of the given. Denatural. Right. Right. It was to denaturalize our conception of nature, but like also, you know, like we talk about frequently as, uh, you know, sort of socialist thinkers, we're confronted with this idea of human nature or, yes. you know, that uh, the things, our behaviors just, you know, like things like social hierarchy are just locked in because just like human beings are actually just like lobsters, you know, what we see when we actually look at, say, chimps and, and gorillas and other, you know, our, our simian and, and ape cousins and, and uncles and so on is that their social hierarchies are incredibly complex and develop on their own and so on, right? They don't have these necessarily strictly patriarchal dynamics within them. Just taking patriarchy, for example, since as it's something that uh, is frequently hyper-naturalized. Um, yeah, and it's it still persists today, but it, that that doesn't give the proof of it being quote unquote natural. I'm reminded of our discussion with John Protevi, where he looks at some different scientists and discusses like a crocodilian. Is that what you're going? That well, no, I'm thinking. Well, that's another thing, and, and I don't. But but I was thinking about how there is this overemphasis on our our sort of heritage from chimpanzees, which obviously have that patriarchal hierarchical structure that that in many times is 
you know, Ingalls is railing against the naturalizers of of that of that as as sort of a given. But there's this other genetic strand that we inherit from bonobos, and they have a different way of organizing their society. And there's this kind of this, it's almost, I don't want to be reductive, but it's kind of like, maybe we should be more like our bonobo ancestors than, than like the chimpanzees, or at least suggesting that, again, there's nothing natural in sort of accepting and resigning ourselves to the, you know, whether it be patriarchy or these different forms of hierarchy that are, that are top down or that are, anyway, I'm kind of not saying this very well, but I think that that just is an added aspect to this denaturalization and sort of questioning our assumptions and presuppositions about whether it be human nature, you know, in scare quotes or whatnot. Even nature, even nature, nature. I was going to bring up this idea about some crocodilians. I think the sex isn't determined by the genes. It's determined, you know, sexing or whatever in quotes is uh, determined by temperatures or something of the eggs and all of that. And it's not this genetic deterministic thing, which I think goes to this kind of more nuanced model of the dialectics of nature or, you know, how nature operates. Right. That the binary sexuality wouldn't, again, is is a presumed supposition that's considered natural but as we see there's nature is a lot more strange than we we think it is exactly maybe this uh, is why like uh ray brazier is all about sellers and his naturalism as just another thread to like keep in mind for like listeners or whomever but i'll be quiet now (laughs) sorry yeah no no no, well go ahead ahead, melody well sure and you know like there's also of course you know uh, the sort of naturalistic fallacy right that because something is natural it is therefore good well you know cochlear implants are not natural but i think some you know people who are hard of hearing or deaf are pretty grateful for that neither are uh, you know synthetic arms or you know prosthetic prosthetic limbs that sort of thing those are not natural and yet i'm sure that folks who have had been bombed and had their limbs blown off are very grateful for the fact that there's a prosthetic option right so you know just getting to this this idea that like the natural is good there's so many layers to unpack there it's not just oh this is natural therefore inevitable because the first layer to unpack is, well, this is not natural. And the second yeah. layer to unpack is, if it's natural, therefore it's good. Well, so is cancer. Cancer is natural. I don't want cancer. Right. If you're looking at things in terms of natural and synthetic to begin with, you've already, your base assumptions, have, you've already started from the wrong set of assumptions, I think. Right. Perhaps. And the point of, a di- of dialectics of nature is precisely to resituate humans within nature. Exactly. Humans are not separate from nature. We're made out of carbon, nitrogen, all that stuff. And again, like to just to to go back to talking about dialectics of nature as a set of the book, that is, as a set of lab notes, what we see is somebody who's incredibly in touch with the contemporary science of his time. Both Marx and Engels were very well, well read in the natural sciences for men of their time. Mm. And I think this is really, it's not incidental it's actually i think it's very core to their whole intellectual project and i I think it's sort of what situates the lineages of marxist socialism in all of its incarnations you know in in this case of of you know soviet russia or you know the soviet union people's republic many other you know socialist societies i think whether you know you can say this that or the other thing about them but they're clearly i think situated within this sort of i guess the, the, the sort of the modernist's frame paradigm or something yeah that paradigm that marx and engels are clearly embedded in with their their very high regard for 
the development of science and industry, not in an uncritical way, right? Because they're clearly, right. you know, Engels talks about pollution and disease in uh, in uh, the condition of the working class in England, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, you know, they're both very, they're fierce critics of modernity, but they're also celebrants of it in some very important ways. I'm thinking of, I know that in the greenery, so he probably says it elsewhere too, where Marx kind of points out how technology itself becomes a business and that there's, you know, being men of science doesn't mean being uncritical. Obviously there's in, in the progress of capital itself and its crises, there are these antagonisms that we've already discussed, right? But those are only conditions of possibility for revolution or communism, you know, with a capital C or something like that. It's not necessarily inevitable, right? This, as you, as you pointed out, and maybe to step back for a lighter note, I, I wanted to know if you're willing to tell a little bit more about your intellectual trajectory is this interest in Marx and Engels and, as you said, you're, um, you're sort of following the bread trail, the breadcrumbs uh, throughout these different Marxist thinkers. Was that any, that have any influence on you moving sort of from physics to economics or is this just another kind of serendipity? Yeah, there's some serendipity involved there. When I finished my undergrad, actually, my undergrad has has two labels on it. It's physics and mathematical econ. It's a, a whatever you okay. call that, a double major. Nice. Okay. Um, and one of the reasons I did that was not just for the bragging rights, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, was for one thing, because I'm genuinely fascinated with both subjects. But for another thing, it was because I wanted to professionally just leave some doors open. Yeah, yeah. And what I found was that, you know, I was a, a queer woman in the, in the natural science world. And, uh, I did not have a lot of friends. I see. And, uh, you know, frequently, as I'm sure you're familiar with, academia is not about merit. It's about who are your friends and where are they and whose ears can they bend. And uh, frankly, you know, like the economics department at my school, at my alma mater, was just a lot nicer to me. Interesting. It's not to to say that, you know, the physics people weren't jerks or anything. They just really weren't that interested in helping their undergrads advance their careers unless they were like really, you know, top of the class sort of like, you know, if you you show yourself to sort of be a golden egg laying goose in that department, then, you know, a professor might pay a little bit more attention to you. I got told flat out by some physics profs, you know, hey, I'm looking to apply to physics to grad school for physics. Can you, you know, sign me a letter of rec? And they were like, look, kid, I'll do it. But like, they just told me flat out, like, you're not going to make it. They weren't jerks about it. They were very, look, you're yeah. smart, you're capable, but like, this is just not how this world works. Whereas the econ people were like, here, let me write you a letter. Let's, uh, you know, I have got friends at universities X, Y, and Z. Why don't you give them an email, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, I have resources yeah. here. This tells you everything about my trajectory here, which is I applied to nine grad schools for physics and one for economics. Guess which one I got into. It's nice that you know, we can kind of see that you're, this also sheds light, I think, on your interest in Ingalls, who obviously may be more well known for, you know, studying political economy, obviously with Marx, but, you know, doesn't, you're giving him the the credit he deserves, I, I suppose, rightly for his interest in the sciences. Yeah. Not, not just econ, which is, I think that that was something too. Again, I, we all have these assumptions and prejudices that sort of, that's just how we navigate things that we, we perhaps don't know as well. And so coming to Ingalls and sort of seeing a much broader vision than just assuming he was only interested in 
political economy or economics because of his work with Marx. I think that was something that that I appreciated very much. Anytime I read Marx and Engels, I mean, a lot of these Marxist thinkers in general, but going all the way back to Marx and Engels, I am just by these men and women and non-binary folks, I am always just blown away by the breadth and depth of intellect that they have because Mm -hmm. Engels is not, you know, Marx and Engels were not just interested in political economy. They were interested in science. They were interested in art, poetry, you know, all kinds of things, you know, and there's, you go through capital and you you look, you you see, yes, it's a, it's political economy. Sure. But there's Shakespeare references in there. There's Goethe Goethe, references. Yeah, of course. And philosophy. Uh, There's some philosophy yeah, too. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, in sort of my prejudicial reading of Marx and Engels, of course, I, I've read, thoroughly read plenty of both of them. My slight prejudice towards Engels is that Engels, despite, you know, he's a very well-educated man, Marx was the one with the philosophy PhD. And uh, I think especially, True. especially younger Marx is still clearly tangled up in it a lot and makes him brilliant, but it also makes him a little bit harder to read. My prejudice is, you know, I maybe showing my cards a little bit too much, my sort of influence from American pragmatism and stuff, but like, I am thoroughly convinced that things that are easier to read are generally, again, generally speaking, have le- less chance of having a bunch of baloney in them. I think for the most part, you're true, except for, but again, I guess that's one of the inheritances from let's just say Hegel, for example, that maybe that's, again, this, this, it's this interesting phenomenon. I'm not sure if we got this when we were recording or before, but there's this, sometimes this sense that dialectics, at least when I'm reading Hegel, it's almost like the difficulty is built in and that that has to be a part of the movement. Whereas as you're, as you're kind of saying, clarity is not a bad thing. No, <laughs> at least for me. I mean, I think that, and I'm saying this as someone who is, <laughs> who, who really likes Deleuze and Guattari or Laura Well, and, and sometimes it can be stultifying uh, and frustrating. And, and again, Cooper is, is always championing Lacan over here. And, and sometimes even with the diagrams, they need a whole <laughs> set of instructions and explanations. You know, it is, there is a sense in which, yes, I agree that 99% of the time incomprehensibility is, is a vice and but sometimes it seems like it's part of the method. As frustrating as that may be, and whether or not that's a good choice, I think that more clarity is better. This is one of the reasons, even if I'm I'm pro Deleuze, usually like Badu sometimes feels, despite the mathematical terminology that you have to learn and take on, there is a sense in which Badu is eminently more clear in in some senses. But that doesn't necessarily make him better either. So there Sure. I, I, I'm I'm devil's advocating here. I'm not really uh yeah, size, I mean, but I, but there are two, there are two quotes for me that come to mind. First of all, I, you know, for me, the importance of Marx and Engels and dialectical materialism and and Marxism just more broadly is that it's a set of tools for ordinary people, working class people, colonized people, and so on to pick up and wield as weapon. Right? Marx says theory becomes a material force when it grips the masses. I'm thoroughly to the core of my soul. That is where I'm at with Marxism. And for me, if you can't explain these things clearly to somebody, as Einstein would say, you don't understand them well enough yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And then the, the two quotes that I wanted to pull out that just exemplify this is first of all, is a quote from the great big Bill Haywood of the IWW. I've never read Marx's Capital, but I bear the marks of capital all over my body. <laughs> and then the second quote was from the great 
other co-founder of the IWW and Socialist Party of America, Eugene B. Debs, he said, my ideal is a thinker in overalls. And uh, I love it. That's where I come to sort of the, you know, the balance between theoretical depth and complexity and at the same time, clarity of communication. Again, like, you know, I come from the world of natural sciences and these are sometimes very difficult things to understand, right? I took years to understand things like calculus. But if you ask me, these are things I can explain with a quick anecdote. That takes a lot of work, but this is sort of, you know, in the context and Engels and and later Marxist thinkers talk about, this is the importance of doing, of having party theoreticians and people who understand the philosophy and these more inscrutable literary things on that deep level, which is not to be the galaxy-brained luminary who leads the great leader of the party. It's to be able to clearly communicate these things through, you know, either the party or the cadre or whatever, and to make them comprehensible and exoteric, to make them accessible to everyday people who are then presumably going to come to the Marxist party to galvanize them around the idea of communism. And so for me, all of this, this whole discussion for me is forms this greater whole. Can I test you out on this? Not to not to like call you out, but I'm just uh, one thing. I, we are getting to like two hours, so I wanted to be sure to get this question in because I thought this was of particular interest. So Engels says, and I don't can't remember if he's quoting Marx. I'm just like loosely quoting here that labor has no value, but labor power does. Can you speak to this? This is where I start getting. This is. You know, I have colleagues who are Marxists who can talk about the sort of hair splitting of this stuff till the cows come home. The difference between labor and labor power, right? Labor is sort of just out there. Labor is not necessarily something that you do that is created. What we're doing now is, you know, arguably intellectual labor, right? But none of us is being paid exactly right. by a boss or, or whatever to do so. Likewise, what I do labor when I go do my dishes, right? That's the reproductive labor of the house, right? But I don't get paid for that. So, but when the individual prole sells his or her or their labor power, their ability to work, right? You are signed on for a, you know, an eight hour shift at McDonald's and you're going to get paid $7.25 an hour to work there for eight hours, no matter if there's somebody comes in and orders one happy meal or you're slammed from start to finish and you make, you know, half a million burgers. The general Uh, equivalency of time and money. Interesting. That's right. Yes. Yes. And uh, if you really, I think it would be here for another five hours talking about it. If I, if I, but I just (laughs) wanted to bring up the person who's absolutely brilliant on uh, Marx and temporality is, is uh, Moisha Postone, Time, Labor and Social Domination. Absolutely brilliant piece of writing specifically on sort of the historical development of timekeeping. Uh, One of my favorite parts of that book. Brilliant. I'm like super interested in time, even outside of sort of the Marx and the labor theory, et cetera, but just generally something that I've not read a lot about, but I find just infinitely fascinating. So I apologize. I kind of dodged your question. Oh, no, you're fine. No, you didn't. You you (laughs) did great because you were talked about how I think this whole labor theory of value gets misconstrued, this differential between labor and labor power, because it's not about your specifically you're making seven hamburgers per hour. Yeah. Like you said, it's like you're ability to be there and like be present to produce. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly. Right. How 
<laughs> well, it's it's integrating this with sort of the base unit of Marx's understanding of how labor and time fit together uh, under cap- under the regime of capitalism, which is socially necessary, abstract right. labor time, right? Just very briefly, socially necessary does not mean necessary in the sense of like, I need X number of calories to survive. It means socially necessary as in how much time on average does it take to make, say, a t-shirt in a, right. you know, in a garment factory. If uh, factory A makes a t-shirt in 20 seconds, factory B makes it in 25 seconds, and factory C makes it in 30 seconds, then there's like a average time per t-shirt. And that's the socially necessary labor time. Right. Abstract, because it's completely generalized, right? Right, right. Factory A and factory C, those are the specific labor times. Once it becomes averaged, it becomes abstract. And the way that the capitalists can make more money is by, and Marx gets into this in Capital, is principally by extending the working day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is what, you know, especially in the struggle over in the 19th century over the eight hour day, right? Yeah. And, and this is exactly what we've seen in the 20th and 21st centuries is, is, is you know, people are, as anybody will tell you, we're working longer hours for shittier pay or yeah. the same pay, which, you know, whatever is the same thing. Well, it becomes um, shittier with inflation and whatnot, right? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He's just adding more layers of complexity to it. But at the base level, the capitalists are trying to extract as much value as possible. This requires them to get the workers to work more hours. So that's sort of the, the base understanding of how labor time functions, this idea of labor power specifically functions within Marxist political economy. It's doing a very specific, it's producing value under a very specific regime. Now, there's a a much bigger debate among, say, between the Marxists and like the institutionalists of whether this value is actually like a measurable, tangible thing. And uh, the people who you'd want to engage with are like uh, Jonathan Nitzen and Shinshin Bickler of, uh, I think, York University. They're the progenitors of the Capital as Power School of Economic Thought, which is sort of in the lineage of Thorsten Veblen and and the institutionalist thinkers. And they really have a problem with uh, this notion of socially necessary abstract labor time, because they're just like, well, this is a complete contrivance. How is this any different from, say, like utility theory from, Mm. you know, neoclassical economic thought and the Marxists, uh, and again, I, I haven't decided if which side of this, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to sort right. of agree more with the Marxists, but it's not as if I, you know, I'm totally disengaged. I think these guys have something interesting to say at the very least. I think this discussion though, does definitely go towards as far as like labor power versus labor goes towards the generation of surplus value. It's not like this direct theft, but it is theft in a yeah. sense. Yeah, no, this is exactly you know how you can probably Mark, say this better than me. <laughs> well, and I will say Marx says it much better than I can in, in Capital Volume One, right? This is how the capitalist fleeces the worker. On paper, this looks like a perfectly equitable legal exchange here. I pay you X number of dollars for your time, and in return, you get to live in your shitty little apartment and and have the privilege of coming back to work at my shoe factory six days a week for 10 hours a day. Yeah. I mean, I guess this goes back to that differential between wage labor and wage capital rather and finance capital. I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but Engels says it pretty well where uh, I think he's quoting Marx. 
He says, in order to be able to extract value from the consumption of a commodity, our friend Moneybags must be so lucky as to find in the market a commodity whose use value possesses the peculiar property of being a source of value, whose actual consumption, therefore, is itself an embodiment of later labor and consequently a creation of value. The possessor of money does find on the market such a special commodity and capacity for labor or labor power. power. And that really, you know, just starts what could be a whole nother episode. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, it just at a very, very fundamental level, it's very Marx 101 type stuff. It's this basic difference between constant capital or C yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in our lowercase C and variable capital, which is the wage labor. And the reason that it's variable is because, again, you can say, like, increase the intensity of work, right? 10 burgers an hour, 100 burgers an hour, right? <laughs> And that's the thing that's the magical aspect, sort of, of a seemingly magical aspect of variable capital is that you can theoretically increase it ad infinitum as long as you're able to, you know, make those goods saleable, which is a presumption that's being made at that level of abstraction. But right. All this is is very good. And you know, I know that we only scratched the surface, but I, I hope that we at least went broad with our discussion. Is there anything Cooper or Melody, do you want to say anything else as we start to wrap up? As I said, I know we didn't get to go into everything, but I did find our discussion wonderful, especially going from Einstein crosses to <laughs> to uh, to labor power yeah, to like Westeros, even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we even left the the real world. So yeah. I want to give you a quick. Uh, if you indulge me for a second, I want to give you a yes, quick, I want to give you a quick. Uh, who said it? Okay. The produce of the earth, all that is derived from its surface by the united application of labor, machinery, and capital is divided among the three classes of the commodity, or excuse me, of the community, namely the proprietor of the land, the owner of the stock or capital necessary for its cultivation, and the laborers by whose industry it is cultivated. I feel like I read that in the anti-during, but I'm not sure. (laughs) This is the correct answer. That's what I had thought too, but yeah. uh, What is this? David Ricardo. David Ricardo, the principles of political economy and ta- taxation, and uh, I, I guess so, sort of this is somewhat tangential to our to our overall discussion, but it, I think it's still relatively germane. We love is, tangents. We love tangents. Uh, when we talk about Marx and Engels in terms of political economy, a lot of what they're doing is simply taking a lot of what was said by David Ricardo and Adam Smith and. You to criticize it to an extent. They make, they make some criticisms, but they're really taking a lot of it as their point of departure. They're treating- Which is kind of the dialectical method itself, right? Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and Capital, the book is, and Marx says something to this effect in the preface. He says, my method of investigation was historical. My method of presentation is dialectical. This is why the first chapter of Capital, much like say the first chapter of a biology textbook is about the cell, right? And then the later chapters of the biology textbook say, here's, okay, here's a cell, here's what an amoeba is. And then they build out from there, they unfold it dialectically. <laughs> and this is, and this again, this is clearly to me where dialectics and natural philosophy or, or the philosophy of science all converge in the thought of Marx and Engels, which is when you open up capital, the first chapter is on the commodity, which is just like the cell is the you know the base unit that you will find in the first chapter of any biology textbook the commodity is that fundamental form which they unfold which marks unfolds into the greater circuit of capitalism which is his 
whole, you know, critique as capital is subtitled, the critique of political economy. It is critique in the scholarly sense. This critique is saying, here's what Ricardo and Smith and Malthus and Torrens and all these other thinkers said. And here's, I'm going to criticize them a little bit, but I'm going to take it further. I'm going to go further with it. I think that's that's a great way to to wrap it up. As I said, you know, it's, it's nice that we obviously, perhaps sometime in the new year, could have you back and, and learn more. To. Because this was... It was excellent having you on. Just the range of the topics we covered for today. I should have clipped more specific dunks that he made on during, but if you're, <laughs> but if you're interested, dear listener, check out Anti During. It's both witty and insightful. And there are some funny parts where it is, it's almost inconceivable that he would have been a popular, you know, thinker of the time. Just seeing how much bullshit he he fits into his uh his books. Yeah. For sure. It's great the way, and it's, it's, it's just great the way that Ingalls, uh, you know, he's, he'll quote a passage and he'll be like, look at during just spouting shit for a page. Like, look, look at this. This is just ridiculous. And then, but then he'll unpack why and show the appropriate way of seeing things. He's, he's almost, it's like the patient of a saint, you yeah. know, L plus ratio plus you fell off. <laughs> <laughs> Coop, I'll, I'll let you sign us off. If you, uh, if, if you feel Melody, before we sign off, oh uh, yes, if you want to discuss maybe your a little bit more about your YouTube channel, anything else that you want to plug or or mention? Uh, sure, the- I got a YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash A World to Win, all one word. I haven't made a new video in a while because I've been in grad school. That's my excuse. What's yours? <laughs> <laughs> but my most recent video was a review of Jonas Cheka's book, How to Philosophize with a Hammer and Sickle. Excellent. The artist formerly known as Cuck Philosophy. <laughs> So go check that out. I also have a video on the dialectics of nature that I wrote with uh, John, the lit crit guy. Uh, oh nice, yeah. Cool guy. Um, nice. was really cool of him to sort of co-write that with me. I talk about the dialectics of nature and science and the, uh, some of the topics we covered today. And he does sort of a dialectical reading of star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, those two are united into a single video. And that's also on my channel. And if, you know, it sparks your interest and you want to support me financially, uh, check out patreon.com slash a world to win. We definitely enjoyed having you. I'm even thinking about, I don't know if this is real or not, but a joke about maybe I should have a, we should have a segment where it's like the galaxy brain question or moment of the the podcast or something like that. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, uh, thanks again for joining us on this week's edition of the Machine of Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is
Lobotomized people as in uh, block work or engine.